You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. One man. One man. It's the trembling that wakes you. Early in the morning, before dawn has fully risen, the world seems to twitch its skin like a dog shaking off water. Roused out of your dream, you run outside to see your neighbor's pigs loose and running amidst the houses, a cauldron of noodles someone was cooking for breakfast tipped over into the fire. And the river, the river is boiling in its bed. Everywhere is confusion. Your sister is trying to help your mother out of bed. She's been sick for weeks and can barely move. You drape her arm over your shoulder and help her to the doorway. Just as you pause in the door, the earth shakes again and the river lurches in its bed and you don't like the look of that river. From the slopes high above, there are boulders bouncing down and landing among the villagers and now everyone is full of panic. Those rocks will kill someone. Your husband appears before you, lending his strength to help with your mother. The water is rising, he says. We must go down and check the levees. You nod and another rock goes whizzing by your head, almost takes it off. I'll get everyone to safety, you say. But where is safety? It's no good climbing the steep slopes that rise from the riverbed. Those cliffside paths won't be safe, not with rock slides threatening and boulders showering down upon you. Then your sight catches on your cousin's house, the one made of sturdy rocks with a stone roof, the one she built with her husband from down the river. There, that will shelter you. You usher everyone inside while your husband marshals the men. No time for elaborate goodbyes. Your mother huddles against the wall. Your nieces and nephews stream in. Your sisters and cousins and sisters-in-law. 
You all take shelter beneath the stone roof. You hear the crash of rocks falling down from above, the cries of animals loosed from their pens. Your nephew is crying and you gather him close, whispering reassurances. For a moment there is nothing but quiet and the sniffles of children and the quiet murmurs of the women. Then the earth shakes again. It's bigger this time, more violent, and off in the distance a great crack, louder than thunder, then a vast roar. The ground is shaking and does not stop. The fall of stones becomes a deluge on the roof. You shut your eyes tight and you pray. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Cultures on every continent have flood myths, Jen. Just about. <laughs> yeah, they do. Water was a kind of a life giver and a terrifying thing. Yeah, it gives life and takes it away. China is no exception to this. There are a number of flood myths that come from different cultures and ethnic groups in China. And China is an incredibly diverse country, by the way. There are 56 officially recognized ethnic groups in China today. So... We've touched on flood myths from other cultures in the past on the podcast. I think we talked about some of them on the Doggerland episode. And one unifying factor seems to be that the flood comes about as punishment from a god for misbehavior on the part of humanity. Humanity is very naughty. You misbehave, you get the flood. <laughs> it does seem to be the message. I mean, to be fair, humanity is very naughty. Yep. Anyway, that is not the case for the flood myth that we are covering today. This myth, or possibly cluster of myths, is known sometimes as Gun Yu mythology. And I just want to say I apologize for my pronunciation of Chinese words. I do not speak Chinese. I am probably going to mess up a lot of things. I apologize. Can't be worse than Gobekli Tepe. It could be. I mean, realistically. Realistically, it could, but let's, let's try not to be. Anyway, these are stories that deal with two figures, Gun and his son Yu, and their efforts to manage a great deluge that threatened to engulf humanity. So according to the mythology, civilization in China arose from this event. What makes this story different from other flood myths is that the deluge doesn't come about because a god was pissed off at something humanity did. That's a very nice, refreshing change, I have to say. You can get a horrific natural disaster without the added trauma of guilt. Who knew? Doesn't that just make it all better? <laughs> I mean, my, my Catholic schoolgirl is like, but can you? <laughs> that is a factor in a lot of flood myths that we've covered from the Mediterranean world, from European cultures, because we looked at, or at least we touched on various flood myths, you know, around the edges of Doggerland. And it does seem to be kind of a theme. It's that God is doing this to us because we deserve it somehow. I mean, that even showed up in the Plague of Justinian. The Plague of Justinian, your Christian monk lunge is showing. It's Christian at that point in time. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, that is true. I'm thinking of John of Ephesus in particular, and he was Christian. I forgot about that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What I would say about this that I find refreshing is a lot of times when you get English translations, there are a lot of missionaries who go there or who have in the past. And it's refreshing that this version has doesn't doesn't seem to have a Christian lens on it, which makes me happy because I could very easily see this having a Christian lens on it. The source material that I'm taking this from, I believe, is pre-Christian. Sure, but again, it's about who translated it. And the idea that the person who translated it isn't putting a lens on it. Again, go back to Doggerland. Like, the idea that, like, the church bells are ringing in Doggerland because they were so wicked. It's like there were no churches or bells. Uh, well, I'll, I'll talk about the translation that I used because that was actually a challenge in this episode. 
It is hard to find some of the primary sources I used in English translations or, you know, English translations I could afford. I wound up relying on crowdsourced translations of things sometimes that were a little more informal, but seemed to be talking about this myth in ways I've read about it. So it seems to line up. So I wouldn't say that the translations that I've been using may have been more modern, but not necessarily from like a Christian monk or whatever, a missionary. Well, that's what I'm saying. You can have a modern translation that doesn't have a Christian lens on it, you know? Anyway, instead of this being a story about a vengeful God punishing humanity, this is a story about a purely natural disaster, one that happens through no particular cause, at least in the versions we've seen. It's also about one man's brilliant works of water engineering that tame the flood and give rise to civilization. And I would say, he had a lot of help. He might have been the one who came up with the idea, but there were other people doing the building. One man did it himself. One man! (laughs) This is a story about one man and his brilliant works of water engineering that tamed the flood. No outside help. Anyway, this isn't to say that there are no magical or mythological aspects to this story. There are many different versions, and in some, Gun and Yu, who are the main characters, are demigods or receive help from mythical beings such as dragons and deities and talking animals. But other versions are more factual, and Gun and Yu are just mortal men who solve problems or fail to solve problems based on their own intellect and hard work. The account that I'm mainly relying on here comes from a document called The Records of the Grand Historian, written by a Han Dynasty court historian named Sima Chen, who lived between 145 and 86 BC. This account is over 2,000 years old, and the period of Chinese history it covers reaches back another 2,000 years, and it provided me with one of the less mythologized accounts of the Great Flood of Gun Yu. The story begins with a man named Gun. Gun was the great-great-grandson of the Yellow Emperor, a mythical figure believed to be either a god or one of China's founding rulers, or both. Gun was a descendant of this mythic ruler, but he wasn't an heir to the throne himself. He was just an official in the court of the current ruler Yao, an important sage king in Chinese mythic history. At this time, the land was inundated by a great deluge. Quote, In the time of the Emperor Yao, the deluge assailed the heavens, and in its vast expanse encompassed the mountains and overtopped the hills, so that the common people were troubled about it. According to tradition, this flood lasted for two generations. People fled their homes in large numbers, taking to the mountains or building houses and trees. In the wake of the flood came the compounding disasters, including famine, starvation, and terrible storms. Another description goes like this, quote, Like endless boiling water, the flood is pouring forth destruction. Boundless and overwhelming, it overtops hills and mountains. Rising and ever rising, it threatens the very heavens. How the people must be groaning and suffering. So terrible was the deluge that the four mountains, variously interpreted as four mountain deities, four ruling nobles each hailing from a different mountain, or four officials in Emperor Yao's court, advised the emperor to appoint Gun to control the floods. Yao didn't want to do this. Quote, Gun is a man who disobeys orders and ruins his companions. He will not do. He said, no, don't like that guy. But the four mountains insisted and eventually Yao caved. Gun was put in charge of controlling the floods. For nine years, Gun tried to calm the wild waters. He built dams and levees, And these dams and levees collapsed, killing hundreds or thousands. Not good. 
he failed spectacularly at his job. Now, according to some versions, he was imprisoned or banished as punishment. According to others, he was executed. In the more mythologized versions, he jumps into an abyss and transforms into a fish or an animal or the god of the abyss. Either way, his son, Yu, eventually takes up his dad's mantle and tries to finish the job. Sometimes he volunteers, but in the records of the grand historian, he's appointed. You'd think they would pick someone else. You'd think, like, maybe they would go to a different family. Well, on the other hand, I mean, just because your dad sucked at his job doesn't mean you're going to suck at your job. No, it, d- it doesn't. But also, like, I don't know what degree do you have. I don't know. I can't speak to that. It doesn't say in the sources. So anyway, you took a different approach than his dad did in calming the waters. Instead of building dikes and levees, he dug canals to redirect the water, siphoning off floodwaters into the flatlands to irrigate fields. He also dredged the riverbeds deepening them, and allowing more space for the waters to flow safely to sea without overflowing their banks. You worked with the water, not against it. It took you 13 years to tame the waters. It's said that he suffered great privations all that time. Quote, Yu was grieved in that his progenitor Gun had been punished on account of his work being incomplete. So, wearied in body and distressed in mind, he lived away from his home for 13 years, passing the door of his house without daring to enter. With ragged clothes and poor diet, he paid his devotions to the spirits until his wretched hovel fell to ruins in the ditch. When traveling along the dry land, he used a carriage. On the water, he used a boat. In my replaces, a sledge. While in going over the hills, he used spikes. On the one hand, he used the marking line, and on the other, the compass and square. You, in this way, worked for the mutual convenience of the respective districts as regards the distribution of the wealth and resources of the country. So, according to some versions, Yu was appointed to this job just four days after his wedding day. And in the entire 13 years, he never saw his wife once. One time, he walked right by her house while she'd just given birth and heard his baby son crying and did not go inside. I mean... They had to have seen each other at least a couple times if she's pregnant. Just that one time, four days after that wedding, they had a good four days and that was it. They packed a lot into those four days, okay? (laughs) She was obviously ovulating. I would just say this is not good dadding or spousing to just disappear for 13 years. Anyway, here's the quote. Quote, I did not treat him as a son and therefore was able to complete my labors on the water and on the land. Yeah, because you were a deadbeat dad. Well, I actually have a rebuttal to that because I have seen this claim made a lot. People reading into this myth that, so like the background of this story is that traditionally, from what I understand, it's kind of held up as this, you as this exemplar of a hardworking, you know, ethical person who is is just like kind of a paragon of like a paragon, you know, and um, so this thing about him sort of forsaking his wife and his child and never seeing them is, is part of that work ethic. But I've also seen, actually, it's specifically in this translation that the reason that he does this is because he's scared about what happened to his own dad. He doesn't want that to happen to him. So in a way, it's like he's doing it out of fear. It could have been fear as to what would happen to his family if he died. I might be reading too much into that there. But that's that's also an aspect that exists. I mean, I also like, look, I can be hard on him as as a wife who would be greatly annoyed if this was my husband. But also... Based on what he's seen in all of his travels, he understands how bad the situation is if he can't get the river under control. So it is kind of 
paramount that he controls the river or else his family may be flooded and killed. So I can understand it. But I'm just saying, like, I wouldn't want to be married to him. Like, that's the downside of being married to a hero, right? Like, they're always off saving everyone. How would you even know if you were married to him? You never see the guy. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. But he's a great hero because his work was, you know, supposed to save all the people. It was super important work. I'm not saying it wasn't important work or he wasn't a paragon of work ethic and all that stuff. It's just like the family side sucked. Their romantic relationships tend not to be uh, the, the most stable, shall we say? I don't know. Anyway. In records of the Grand Historian, you travel the length and breadth of the land, dividing it up into nine provinces, allocating water and resources as needed, determining everyone's tax burden according to their ability to produce. He brought order to chaos and crafted a functioning kingdom with his own hands, his own sweat and blood, and at great personal sacrifice and with no help from anyone else. No one else helped dig these ditches or other things. It was all him. One man. One man. Did all of this. That's right. And at the end of it, at the age of 53, he was appointed the emperor's heir and eventually became the emperor himself. He is the mythical founder of the Sia dynasty, believed to be China's first dynasty. So was this story real? Mm. Is this is this actually talking about a real thing that happened in some sense is my question. Eh. So the Great Flood of Gunyu looms large as a foundational Chinese myth. According to this story, civilization arose as a direct result of one man's... One man! <laughs> one man's ability to control the floodwaters. This story has been roughly dated to the end of the 2000s BC. So like 2000 BC or thereabouts. Sometimes I've seen 2200 BC. Sometimes I've seen the 1900s BC. And that's believed to be the earliest root of Chinese civilization. The question is, as I've said, is this story real? Was there really a flood during this time that wreaked havoc on the population? And did the people, did one man, successfully control that flood? Is that really what led to the founding of China's first dynasty? Can these stories be credibly based on real-life events? These questions inevitably lead us to another question, which is, did the Xia dynasty, China's first dynasty, did that exist? Because that is heavily disputed. And um, just a word about the pronunciation here. I have seen this word for China's first dynasty pronounced as both Sha and Sia. And I have to go with one, so I picked Sia. I hope that's okay. Apologies if it is not. Sima Chen, who wrote about the Sia in the records of the Grand Historian, also wrote about the successors of the Sia, the Shang. Uh, And they ruled from 1600 to 1046 B.C. And the Zhou, who ruled from 1046 to 256 BC. These are accepted as factual dynasties because we can connect historical records with ruins that are confirmed to belong to these dynasties. The earliest writing in China appears in roughly 1400 BC, when people wrote divinations on oracle bones made of tortoise shells and ox scapulae, as well as ritual bronze vessels. Some of this writing mentions the Shang dynasty by name as the dynasty the writers were in at the time. We also have written artifacts from the time of the Zhou dynasty that confirms the dynasty's existence. But there's no writing from the right time period. No inscriptions on stone or statues, no writing on pottery or seals or bronzes, no oracle bones, or any other tell in the archaeology that mentions Yu or the Sia dynasty or Gun or anything else from the time period from that myth. Nothing from the time of the Sia can be confidently ascribed to the Sia. 
which is why most mainstream historians and scholars believe that Great Yu and the Sia dynasty itself are mythical. But here's the thing. Before people discovered those oracle bones that mentioned the Shang, the Sia's successor, it was generally believed that they were mythical too. And lots of societies didn't have writing and can be confidently said to exist. Some would say that the fact that we don't have writing from the time of the Sia is a thin pretext to just decide that they don't exist. Surely we can find other signs of the Sia and the great flood that it arose from in the ground. I mean, if there was a great flood that gave rise to this dynasty, surely there must be some sign of it in the archaeology, right? That's what I would assume. And before we go further, we have to mention that we also have to be careful because nationalism is an issue. Historically, the Chinese government has had an interest in presenting history, as if everyone in China had the same history and came from the same place, the fertile valleys of the Yellow River and the Xia dynasty. In 1995, the Chinese government commissioned a project to confirm the existence of this dynasty for once and for all, involving over 200 experts across multiple disciplines. The dates they came up with were from 2070 to 1600 BC, and the study linked the Sia with a culture called the Early Two, which lived in the Yellow River Basin. Those conclusions were not universally accepted, however, for various reasons, including methodology, how various archaeological evidence has been interpreted, and the alleged nationalist agenda. Yeah, it's kind of like what Barry Strauss said, trying to fit the history into a story that you already want to tell. Yeah, into a narrative. That's not how history is supposed to work. <laughs> you okay? Yeah, I don't know why my dog just started aggressively barking. Shh, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Okay, sweetie, it's okay. Charlie has real strong feels about nationalism. That's all I'm going to say. He really does. He is not in favor of nationalism. Of any kind. I agree about the nationalism. I agree. And we all agree about not trying to shape your history to fit in a preconceived narrative. <clears throat> Graham Hancock. <clears throat> Charlie and Barry Strauss say don't make your history fit, fit a preconceived narrative. <laughs> Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Anyway, so that's the issue. There are other issues, too. It's not just because no writing has been found from the time period that effectively labels the civilization that we're talking about as the Sia. It's also because uh, the Shang, the dynasty that ostensibly came right after the Sia, um, you know, overthrew them, doesn't mention them at all. You would think they would, right? 
The earliest place the Sia is mentioned that I found is in the Book of Documents, which is a compilation of speeches and other writing credited to some of China's earliest leaders and historical figures. The dating of these documents is fiercely debated, and different sections have colorful, possibly mythical backstories. Parts of it were said to have been reconstructed from memory after a much later ruler allegedly burned texts and buried 460 Confucian scholars alive in 213 BC. Good lord. He did that to suppress political dissent. Other parts of the documents were said to have been discovered walled up in Confucius's family estate in the hundreds BC. Not everyone agrees that these events actually happened as reported. And other sections, once believed to be the oldest in the book, were found to be 3rd or 4th century AD fabrications. The history of these documents is very muddy, but the oldest sections of the text are believed to be those that talk about the Zhou dynasty, which began in 1046 BC. It's not certain when they date to, but they couldn't date to earlier than the Zhou were in existence. So, the earliest the Sia is mentioned anywhere in Chinese history appears to be a minimum of a thousand years after they existed. Maybe as many as 2,000 years. I've also seen some mention of vessels that have uh, Yu's name on them. Those also date back to the Zhou. So they don't really give us any more information than we already have. Yeah, essentially they also date to 1,000 years after he would have been around. So highly mythologized, even if he was real. Some scholars believe that the Sia were an invention of the Zhou in order to justify their own right to rule. So they believe, you know, there are people who believe that this story has always been some kind of nationalist propaganda of some kind. Yeah, and some historians have noticed that the history of the Sia dynasty has some suspicious parallels to historical events that occurred during the Shang dynasty, suggesting that someone was fabricating Sia history based on real events that happened later. Julius Caesar, this sounds very familiar. What's truth and what's propaganda? Nobody knows for sure. This sounds awfully familiar. I mean, this happened when we were reading about the Spartacus War and the other two servile wars. Like, the Romans did that all the time. I'm not saying that this is like the Romans, but just this part. It's it's the one that comes to mind first, but clearly this is independent and happened all over the place. Like, it's not a, a new thing. So, as I said, most researchers today consider the story of you and the Great Flood and the Sia to be mythical. There is a tangled web of nationalism here, past and present, to deal with. But could there be a grain of truth here? Is it possible to look beyond the nationalism and the propaganda and find the story of an ancient people dealing with frequent flooding and the necessity of taming those floods as a precursor to more complex societies? Meh. Some researchers say definitely. Jen is skeptical. (laughs) I'm actually not that skeptical. I do come down on the definitely place. But I like to be a little contradictory, a little contrarian sometimes. You and your dog both. Um, (laughs) We're both really like feisty today. (laughs) You're both apt to bark at the nationalism, as you should. (laughs) Anyway, the key to the answer to this mysterious age-old question involves understanding the dynamics of the two greatest rivers in China, the Yellow River and the Yangtze River. So, in the story of the Great Yu controlling the waters, a great flood causes havoc. Many people die, communities are erased, and a civilization arises out of natural disaster. This is a foundational flood myth for a reason. It's a familiar story that probably happened again and again to ancient communities that lived along China's mightiest rivers. 
The Yangtze River is the longest river in China and basically the longest river in the entire Eurasian continent. It's the third longest in the world at 3,915 miles long, which is a lot of miles. It flows from west to east across the middle of China, beginning in the ancient glaciers high on the Tibetan Plateau and flowing across the country through very mountainous territory. Dropping over 17,000 feet in its first 1,600 miles, it's an ancient river that has existed by some accounts for as many as 45 million years, although not everyone agrees with that length. The Yangtze is an incredibly powerful river. In some places, it's over 600 feet deep. Because it drops from such a mountainous height, its current has historically been very strong. Once, before the Three Gorges Dam was built, the current was so strong that large container ships had trouble going upstream. The dam changed that as it changed so many things about this river. People have been making their homes beside this river for as many as 27,000 years, and the whole time, they've had to deal with severe and frequent flooding, mostly during rainy monsoon seasons. In the past 2,000 years, there have been over a 1,000 floods along this river, and they're often lethal. In 1911, a flood killed 100,000 people. In 1931, 145,000 people died, although I've seen an alternate number of 4 million. In 1954, 30,000 died. I've also seen larger numbers in the millions for these floods, and I think the discrepancy is that the smaller numbers are people who died initially as the floodwaters rose, and then those who died of starvation later because this impacted crop cycles and maybe disease and things like that. So, In 2006, the Three Gorges Dam was completed. Standing almost a mile and a half long, 377 feet wide, and 607 feet high. It's one of the largest dams in the world, involving 35.6 million cubic yards of concrete, 463,000 tons of steel, enough to build the Eiffel Tower 63 times over, and 134.2 million cubic yards of earth. I gave you guys a lot of statistics about the Three Gorges Dam. You're welcome. All this building was done to tame the Yangtze. The dam was built to control the disastrous flooding downstream, with mixed results. Some say the dam has reduced flooding in the upper and middle lengths of the river by over 60%. I would say that's the official line. Maybe, Charlie, we might be seeing nationalism here. Do you have anything to say? He's thinking about it. But others dispute the effect it's had, especially since 2020, when intense flooding probably caused by climate change killed 219 people and displaced over 744,000. The dam has come at great cost, too. The Three Gorges Reservoir flooded the historic and beautiful Three Gorges region, a place where the Yangtze once traveled through three successive towering gorges, full of ancient ruins and history. In the creation of the dam, both ancient ruins and contemporary towns were flooded, displacing thousands. The dam has allowed for more industry along the river, which has led to more pollution, and it's now tragically one of the most polluted waterways in the world. Can I say, when I was researching, I really wanted to do a Sunken City episode. I don't know when this is going to drop, if you'll have seen which one I picked or not. When I was going to do it, I almost covered these ruins. Yeah. But anyway, before the dam was built, and after, the Yangtze was a deadly, powerful river beset by frequent flooding. Ancient cultures knew this, and settled near it anyway. 
The ancient people who settled near the Yangtze were engaged in a deadly dance with the river. On the one hand, settling by the river brought the ability for transportation and trade, a steady source of water for drinking and agriculture, and the flat, fertile soil of the floodplains. On the other, those floodplains were frequently flooded, and the flooding was frequently lethal. But if you think it's difficult living by the Yangtze River in ancient times, or modern times, try living by the Yellow River. The Yellow River is China's second longest river. Like the Yangtze, it flows from west to east, beginning in the high Tibetan mountains and emptying into the Bohai Sea. But whereas the Yangtze crosses the country at more or less the middle, the Yellow River is to the north. The Yellow River is also one of the siltiest rivers in the world. Its distinctive yellow color comes from the silt it carries, over 1.6 billion tons per year. Most of this silt comes from where the Yellow River runs into the Loess Plateau, a high plateau in northern and central China made of Loess, a silt-like material formed by millennia of dust accumulation from the Gobi Desert, brought by glacial activity and prevailing winds. The Yellow River is the birthplace of many important ancient civilizations in China's history. It's where the Shang and the Zhou dynasties were based. It's where Chinese writing first evolved, and it's considered the cradle of Chinese civilization. However, the siltiness of this river makes it a particularly dangerous river to live by. This is why. The silt builds up on the riverbed, making the Yellow River unusually shallow for a river this size. So any amount of unusual rainfall can make the river overflow its banks, and the riverbed is constantly rerouting, sometimes straight through cities and settlements. Historical documents have recorded over a thousand floods in the past 4,000 years, a shifting of the entire lower course of the river once every 25 years, and a serious levee breach every year. Pele Hawaiian goddess of volcanoes, fire, and rebirth. Maeve, Celtic warrior queen and nemesis of heroes. Kiyohime, Japanese fire-breathing snake demon. Pesta, Norwegian spirit of the Black Death. Our book, Women of Myth, is a fascinating look at women and femme characters in world mythology, including goddesses, heroines, and monsters with captivating illustrations by Ringo Award-nominated artist Sarah Richard. It's the perfect gift for the mythology lover in your life, including yourself. Find Women of Myth wherever books are sold. So, just as Gunn tried and failed to dam the river in the mythology, attempts to tame the Yellow River with levees have historically failed, sometimes disastrously. The shallowness of the riverbed due to all that silt makes the Yellow River exceptionally difficult to dam with levees and dikes. And the Yellow River floods can be just as deadly as those along the Yangtze. In fact, some of the worst natural disasters in China's history were floods along the Yellow River. One was the flood of 1887, which killed at least 930,000 people. Some estimates say 2 million. And that might be, you know, people who died in the initial flooding versus people who starved and died of disease later. Exactly. Another was the flood of 1931, which inundated about 88,000 square miles of land and killed 850,000 to 4 million people. And a third massive flood in 1938 killed about 500,000 to 900,000 people. So both of these rivers were, and still are, deadly. 
Both have a long history of large, high-volume floods that inundate the surrounding countryside for miles around, causing displacement, disruption, and famine, as well as deaths by drowning. Flooding was no doubt foremost in the minds of ancient people whose lives and livelihoods depended on the behavior of capricious rivers. And no doubt a ruler's ability to control or mitigate floodwaters played a huge role in their ability to rule. A story like Yu's probably replayed itself again and again for millennia all up and down these powerful, wild, and unpredictable rivers. But do we have specific examples of this playing out in the archaeology? Surely if civilizations were constantly being inundated by floods, there'd be evidence of that, right? Turns out there is. The Liangzhu lived from 34,000 to 2250 BC in the Yangtze River Delta. The center of Liangzhu culture consists of a walled city, with the wall over 4.3 miles long and as many as 13 feet high, with six city gates. It enclosed an area over 716 acres, where as many as 34,000 people lived. In its time, archaeologists believe it was the largest city in China, and it had influence far beyond its city walls. In fact, many historians believe this is the earliest example of a state society anywhere in China. Inside, there was a palace that covered 74 acres, taking up more than a tenth of the city area, and a complex system of canals and moats. These people were rice farmers, and there was a granary here that could hold as many as 33,000 pounds of rice. There were both artificial mounds and natural hills within the city walls, perhaps providing valuable high ground for when the river flooded. The settlement extended for over 1,729 acres outside the city walls, across a floodplain crisscrossed by waterway networks at the mouth of the powerful Yangtze. Some believe that the waterways were a kind of highway network for these ancient people, as the city had a number of waterway entrances connecting it to the riverine highways. The Sia were said to be a highly stratified society, with an economy based on agriculture, and Liangzhu was both of those things. Its palace took up about a tenth of the whole area of the city inside the walls. Grave goods also show a clear division of classes, with lower-status graves containing pottery and higher-status graves containing exquisitely worked jade artifacts, including iconic vessels, bead discs, axes, pendants, and plaques of a kind that was once believed to originate with the Zhou dynasty a thousand years later. And they're decorated with motifs that can be found on Shang dynasty bronzes starting in the 1600s. There's clear cultural continuity here between the Liangzhu and the later dynasties. And it's clear this culture spent a lot of time and resources dealing with floods. In the area outside the Liangzhu city, there is a massive network of earthen dams, dikes, canals, and reservoirs, both for flood control and agriculture. The city's network of artificial waterways was so complex that it's sometimes referred to as the Venice of ancient China. Or... Venice is the Langeau of ancient Italy or modern Italy. Yeah, because, you know, this came first <laughs> by a lot. Exactly. Exactly. So in 2017, researchers discovered even more information about the aquatic engineering prowess of this culture, a previously unknown series of levees built in low-lying marshes to control floodwaters on the alluvial plain as well as six dams further upstream that corralled water into reservoirs in the mountain foothills far outside the city. This network of dams was capable of holding back approximately 6.5 billion cubic meters of water. The dams were built at the very beginning of Liangzhu's founding. 
around 3200 BC, and they were built so well that some of the dams are still in use today. According to an article in the South China Morning Post, quote, Environmental uncertainty played a central role in the Yangju. This included the risk of flooding in the wet season and drier periods that would have destroyed the paddy fields. This uncertainty might first have encouraged the establishment of more regular religious practices that brought dispersed groups together for ceremonies. The depictions of a fearsome monster on artifacts across the region suggest the existence of some kind of shared mythology. Organized religious practices may, in turn, have encouraged the establishment of stricter social norms and even leadership roles for people who seemed able to predict or control the weather, for instance. The formation of a social hierarchy could then have helped to mobilize a large workforce for more practical communal projects such as dam building. While this would have brought greater cohesion and prosperity for the whole community, it would also have helped to cement the elite's power by allowing them to control who had access to the technology and who could enter or leave the city by its canals. The result was a society with a formal government and with sufficient wealth to create elaborate artwork and architecture. So, let's break this down a little bit. Basically what they're saying is that this was a people constantly dealing with environmental uncertainty. The ability to control the floodwaters was tied inexorably to the increasing complexity of the society. And if this sounds like a familiar story, that's because it's Yu's story. This is the exact story told in Great Yu Controls the Waters. Yeah, it is. That's amazing. Right? Like, you can see it in the archaeology, that that's how it happened. But as they lived by the flood, they died by the flood. Evidence suggests that despite the elaborate flood control measures, Liangju experienced a number of disastrous flood events. Archaeologists have found that several times the city's development phases were interrupted by thick layers of flood sediment, thick mud and debris, even whole trees. Many times, people eventually returned and rebuilt. But around roughly 2300 BC, an unusually heavy monsoon season, possibly caused by increased intensity of El Nino events, caused the Yangtze and its tributaries to swell far beyond what the Liangju dams could contain. Evidence shows that the city was buried in flood sediments and deserted for good this time, and a period of heavy rains continued for several hundred years afterwards, making the floodplain uninhabitable. It's the end of this period, roughly 2000 BC, that Great Yu's time is traditionally dated to. Some suggest that if there was a Great Yu or a Yu the Great, he got really lucky because the climate was drying out again right as he started his water control project. So, the answer when you look at the Liangju seems clear-cut. We have one civilization that was complex and stratified, and that had a history of both river engineering and of flooding. Events in this ancient city could easily have given rise to the story about Yu and the Sia dynasty. There even could have been one charismatic leader, one man, one man and a very angry dog, <laughs> or several at various times, whose names are now lost and who led the people in building these great public works projects to control the waters. Maybe there were women. Yeah, I mean, likely. Because women have brains too, damn it. Yeah. So when I looked at civilizations along Yellow River, what I found was a bit more fragmented. The Yellow River is definitely worth looking at because this is the traditional place where the Sia were believed to be and where Yu was supposedly operating according to the more modern interpretation and that study from the 90s. I didn't have time to look into every ancient civilization that arose along the banks of this river, but when I did look into things, what I found was a more fragmented picture. 
Two societies that contained elements of the Sia, and one great flood that could have destroyed everything for miles downstream and did result in death for at least one ancient settlement during the right time. None of this presents a complete picture on its own, but taken together, these stories could tell us something about where various elements of this myth could have come from. First, we're looking at the Longshan, from 3000 to 1700 BC. Longshan was a civilization encompassing many towns along the Yellow River. They were also an agricultural people, farming mostly millet. They're known for their finely produced black eggshell pottery. They're advanced stone tools for farming and their metalworking. They produced copper tools, bells, and rings, as well as bronze and brass artifacts. As they developed, the Longshan grew more populous and their civilization more stratified. They built towns surrounded by rammed earth walls in which earth was piled into an erect wooden frame and pounded vertically until it was as hard as stone. You can tell Jenny wrote this with all the erect and poundings. So much vertical pounding. (laughs) So much erect. (laughs) (laughs) Everything was so erect. Hard as stone. (laughs) Anyway, these were large-scale construction projects, implying a high level of social control. Arrowheads, spearheads, dagger axes, and other weapons found at Longshan towns suggest a warlike culture. This tracks with what we know about the history of the Sia. According to the chronicles we have, Yu the Great was sort of a sage king, wise, slow to anger, kind of idealized, really, really big work ethic. Big, hard, strong work ethic. Have you seen those walls? So vertical, hard as steel. They're so big. They're so tall. They're so packed. (laughs) What are we doing? We're trying to be serious right now. Why do people listen to us? (laughs) I didn't write any of that in. Yes, she did. (laughs) It was between the lines. Anyway, so, Hugh the Great was just perfect in every way, including that he never saw his wife for 13 years and didn't see his kid. But as the dynasty moved on, later rulers became increasingly warlike. This is like from documents like the, you know, records of the Grand Historian and elsewhere. According to the lore, the history, the Sia were also the first to invent solar and lunar calendars. In 2013, researchers discovered a stone semicircle built on the lower slope of a mountain in Longshan territory. The semicircle curved toward the rising sun, and the stones were placed in such a way that rays of sunlight would travel through the center of the circle from different angles at different times of year. It was an observatory, archaeologists think, to track equinoxes and solstices and other important astronomical events that probably had relevance to the agricultural process and when you plant things. I got this information from a documentary called China's Beginning, the Sia Dynasty. It goes in depth into cultures that could have been the basis for the Sia. In the documentary, the professor in charge of the dig that found this monument, Dr. He Nu, I'm probably mispronouncing that, apologies, of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, suggests that rulers in the community may have used the information given by the stone circle as a form of social control. The ruler told you when to plant your crops according to the sacred knowledge of the stone circle. This information could be used to control the populace, and it could be a double-edged sword. Rulers could wield this knowledge to rule with an iron fist, and a population too tightly controlled could rebel. Eat Eat the the rich! rich. Eat Eat the the rich! rich. And also, (laughs) it could turn out that your information was just wrong, and you have a natural disaster that you can't explain and didn't predict, in which case, eat eat the the rich! (laughs) (laughs) 
In mythology, the Sia dynasty ended with a man named Gia, who was known to be degenerate and cruel. Gia was known for his evil deeds. His lifestyle was lavish and sex-fueled. I mean, sounds good to me. (laughs) I don't see anything bad so far. (laughs) He was an extremely picky eater. Anyone who served him the wrong thing, with ingredients from the wrong place, lost their head. Gia drank only a special type of 100-proof wine. And if anyone tried to serve him less potent wine, they were executed. There was a lot of just off with their heads going on in this story. Yeah, it just sounds like he's a real drunk, like, wild dude. (laughs) Gia also had this thing where he could only drink wine whilst riding someone like a horse. Dionysus wept, man. I don't think Dionysus approves of this. No, he does not. This is non-consensual. He does not approve. What it reminds me of is like a Caligula stories. You know, if this dude did exist, some of this may have been to discredit him. I don't know. Maybe he really was a tyrant. Who knows? But it reminds me of like stuff that they say about Caligula and um, Nero and people like that. Yeah. So sometimes Gia would ride his chancellors like a horse while he drank. And when these chancellors dropped from exhaustion, he had them executed. As one does. As one does. The people lived in terror of Gia. He had lost their trust, and at the end, not even his own generals would obey him. So Gia had a wife or consort, depending on the story. I think it's Mwashi. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it. I've heard Mwashi, so I'm going to go with that. Um, But anyway, she was also known for her cruelty. The account of her life is not in the records of the Grand Historian. It's from a different document, the Biographies of Exemplary Women from 18 BC. And according to this account, Mwashi was beautiful but unvirtuous, wore a sword at her hip, and had the heart of a man. You know, so far so good to me. Anyway, she enjoyed partying and having a good time. And so did Gia. And their parties often had collateral damage. For example, in one story, Mwashi convinced Gia to dig a man-made lake and fill it with booze. Yum. I mean, so far, so good. So far, Dionysus would be okay with this. Yeah, they then sailed around on the booze lake in a drunken frenzy amidst an orgy of naked hotties, male and female, because that's how they rolled. Here for it, here for it. Mwashi ordered 3,000 men to drink from the booze lake, lowering their faces to the lake as cattle do at the beat of a drum. Mm. Nah, not as into this. This is less consensual, not loving it. I don't know if it's consensual, but it doesn't seem like it. They drank until they became intoxicated, and then they all fell into the lake and drowned. Yeah, it doesn't sound good. Ruining the vibe of a perfectly good orgy. Yeah, she ruined her own orgy. So anyway, she thought allegedly, you know, Mwashi and Gia thought this was hilarious. This is a very Messalina feel to me, you know? Right, yeah, totally. It, it reminds me of that stuff. So in the Chronicles, Gia is overthrown by someone from the outside who starts the Shang Dynasty. But evidence in the ground at Longshan suggests that the rebellion came from within. Eat the rich, Jenny. It is, it is an eat the rich situation over at Longshan, let me tell you what. At one Longshan site, several skeletons have been found thrown in garbage heaps who suffered violence and torture before their deaths. These skeletons appear to be from the aristocracy, based on the state of their skeletons. Just a warning, just a bit of a trigger warning, we're going to talk about some really dark stuff. We don't know what it is, if it's genital mutilation or rape or just something really bad that happened to a woman, so just be advised. One woman, whose bones and teeth suggest she was a member of the aristocracy, 
was found decapitated in a garbage pit filled with pig and cow bones. Before her death, her attackers shoved a cow horn into her vagina. Its point can be found poking through her pelvic floor. So anyway, the connection between Longshan and the ancient records we have about the Sia dynasty are very tenuous. What we have in the ground is evidence of metalworking and farming, evidence that they had a solar observatory in the form of an ancient stone circle, and we also have evidence of a violent uprising, including a woman from the upper classes targeted as a victim of torture, rape, and beheading. Is the story of Gia based on an ancient culture whose rulers were cruel enough to inspire an internal rebellion? Is Moashi's story based at least partially on that of a real ruling class woman who inspired the people's hatred in some way? I don't know. I mean, we can't say for sure. And the evidence is, as I've said, very tenuous. And of course, maybe this woman was just kind of collateral damage. Maybe they didn't hate her. They just hated the ruling class. Like, who knows? Maybe. Maybe she was a priestess and they were angry at her. Yeah, because that's the kind of double-edged sword you hold when the legitimacy of your rule is tied to what the river does. Or what the crops do. Maybe, maybe there could have been a story here that contributed to the mythology around the Sia. I mean, who knows, right? So the next culture that I wanted to look at is called the Early Two culture, which dates from around 1900 to 1500 BC. Early Two is the culture associated with the Sia in that report from the 1990s. In general, historians don't agree that the Early Two are definitely the Sia. Um, but I am going to include it anyway because Early Two is really interesting and fascinating, and I just wanted to talk about it. The Early Two is located on a tributary of the Yellow River to the west of Longshan in the Henan province. Some believe they may have evolved from Longshan culture. There are a number of urban sites in the Yellow River Valley associated with them, but their main site is located near the modern village of Early Two and gets its name from there. This town is quite structured compared to other ancient Neolithic settlements. There's evidence of town planning. There were industrial areas of bronze smelting workshops, neighborhoods for lower and upper classes, paved roads laid out in grid patterns, and in its center, a walled palace and temple area, whose layout is similar to the layout of later Chinese imperial palaces, including the Forbidden City, according to some researchers. It's estimated that about 20,000 people lived here at its peak. The complexity of the early two is one thing that leads researchers to believe it may have been the Sia. Another is its metalworking capabilities. At the end of Yu's story, once he's tamed the Wild River and formed the nine provinces of the Sia dynasty, he collected bronze tribute from each new province. From this metal, he cast nine tripod cauldrons, that were used to symbolize the mandate of heaven, the emperor's permission to rule, which came from the gods themselves and sets up an epic dynasty. Yeah, and bronze is a big part of early two's story too. The early two people imported ore from distant mountains to make sophisticated bronze vases, the most sophisticated of any culture we've looked at so far. In this culture, bronze objects appear to have a ritual significance and were highly associated with elite. It appears that early two had monopolized the production of these special vessels. There's cultural continuity here. I've seen research that questions whether that continuity is real or not, you know, if they're misinterpreting various things, but people have spotted it. Another thing about the Sia is that they were believed to be highly innovative farmers, using principles taught to them by you and otherwise sage kings. And early two may have been just as innovative. They've got that going too. 
Unlike other Neolithic cultures, instead of relying on just one or two types of crops, early two had five foundational crops, wheat, soybeans, rice, and two varieties of millet. Some of these seeds came from the northwest and further south in the Yangtze River Delta, suggesting strong trade connections and perhaps influence across distances. When a natural disaster such as a flood happens, it's not just the flood itself that kills. Flooding can ruin crops, setting off periods of starvation. But having different types of crops to rely on is like an insurance policy against different kinds of natural disasters. For instance, rice thrive in wet environments, including flooded fields. In fact, you need to flood the fields to grow the rice, whereas foxtail millet grows well in dry soil. So they're the ideal plant in times of drought. Yeah, and they had five different plants for five different situations. It's like they natural disaster-proof their agriculture. Yeah, which is super smart. It's extremely smart. So far, we've found one civilization that had its own civil calendar and that seems to have ended in violence against its ruling classes, seems to have ended in an eating of the rich, shall we say. We don't know why, but the stories in Sia mythology around cruel and capricious leaders may have been a clue. I didn't see any archaeological evidence of a booze lake. But eating the rich. I did see archaeological evidence of eating the rich, though. And we have another society that was complex, had palaces laid out like later imperial palaces in China, and that was innovative in the way the Sia were in their agriculture and metalworking. But what about the floods, Jen? What about the floods? So there isn't a lot of evidence about flooding occurring at early Tu or Longshan that I've found. In fact, I've seen some research suggesting that the Longshan culture in the region that they were in thrived in a particularly arid period where there would have been less flooding. I don't know. However, there is evidence of a massive flood along the Yellow River, which happened just before the early two culture arose. In fact, if the early two were the Sia, this is just about right with regard to timing. I'm talking about the Jishi Gorge outburst flood. According to the research, here's what happened. Sometime around 1920 BC, an earthquake sent a landslide tumbling into the Yellow River. The landslide was big enough to block the river, serving as a kind of natural dam. According to analysis of ancient sediments, a lake formed over 4,000 feet back from the dam, reaching a depth of 787 feet above the current water level. But the dam couldn't hold all that water forever. After less than a year, research suggests it was six to nine months, the dam burst, resulting in what's been called the largest freshwater flood to ever occur in the Holocene Epoch. A huge wave of water swept downstream at a rate of over 1.5 million feet per second. Flood sediments found downstream of the dam rise as many as 164 feet above present-day water levels, with boulders embedded in the mud that are up to 6.5 feet in diameter. This flood would have affected communities as many as 1,200 miles downstream. And we have archaeological evidence of what that effect could have looked like. Just about 15 miles downstream of the Jishi Gorge, there's the Legia archaeological site. Legia is an ancient Neolithic settlement dating from around 2300 BC, where people farmed millet and other cereals and raised pigs, cattle, and sheep. They didn't eat their pigs, incidentally. Their pigs were purely for ritual purposes. They made oracle bones out of pig scapulae. Also, the oldest known noodles in the world were found here. That's incredible. Anyway, something killed the people here in large numbers and all at once, sometime around 1920 BC. Inside a crushed Neolithic building, the skeletons of 16 individuals were found, mostly women and children, entombed in mud. 
It's a heartbreaking scene, because they seemed to know something bad was coming. The inhabitants were huddled up against the building's walls, women holding children in their arms and shielding them with their bodies. DNA has been tested, and it's been found that the inhabitants were closely related, probably from the same extended family. So the cause of the natural disaster that killed these people is still being debated. In the past, it was believed to be a straightforward mudslide, maybe caused by an earthquake. But more recently, the disaster has been linked to the Jishi Gorge megaflood. It's believed that the mudslide was caused by the same earthquake that broke the dam, and then the water buried everything in more sediments. Of course, this story is, like everything else, hotly debated. Some researchers question the dates and chronology, but this is one version of events that suggest a massive megaflood that could have given rise to Great Yu's story. Perhaps this great megaflood caused unprecedented disaster all along the Yellow River, giving rise to a charismatic leader, one one man, man who ushered in a new era of flood control, which led eventually to the early two culture. That's one version of the story. Historians are still debating whether the Sia existed, and no ancient culture has been definitively linked to them. The evidence may still be in the ground, waiting for us to find it. Or maybe the story of Yu and the Sia takes a little bit from cultures all along the Yangtze and the Yellow River. Stories of uprising and revolt, stories of agriculture and metalworking innovation, and stories of floods, how they affected the people, and what measures were taken to prevent them, and what happened to rulers when they succeeded and when they failed. It's possible that there were many Yus. <coughs> Probable. Probable, likely even, that there were many Yus from many different places and time periods, who led their people in trying to control floodwaters. And maybe there were many guns, too, who failed and were punished accordingly. It's also possible that the story of the Sia is the story of all of Neolithic China, taking something from everywhere, preserved and mythologized over the millennia. So that's it for this week. You can find us on social if you want to say something cheery. Our last few episodes have been real... Dark ones. Um, we are still on Twitter while it exists at Ancient His Fan. I refuse to call it X. Yeah, we're not calling it that nonsense. We're also on Instagram, Threads, Facebook, and TikTok at Ancient History Fangirl. Do say hello and nice things. We are able to make this podcast because of our incredible patrons. Literally, we wouldn't be able to do this without them. So we have a couple of patrons to thank this week. Yeah, our Patreon is at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. For just a couple bucks a month, you could support the podcast and get extra content and hear your name called out in an episode as we thank you. We have some patrons to thank today. Apologies to anyone whose name we mispronounce. Thank you so much to Anne Ten, Josh Carey, Mariah Miley, Jennifer O'Brien, Margot McNeil, and C Legs. Arr. Arr. That's a great pirate name. I guess we have at least one pirate amongst the patrons. We support that. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.